Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense, Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey, hello, and how are you? And welcome to this week's edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we discuss some of the best moments, best names, and best memories in sports history. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and and hope that you're having a great day, a good evening, and an awesome night wherever you're listening. And we're back again with another show highlighting the best in sports history. And I appreciate you taking time out to give us a listen. And as a reminder, please subscribe to this podcast if you like what you hear here and check out our Twitter page at HistoricallySP2 for your daily dose of sports history. This is a special episode of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast where we're going to be talking about rivalries and more specifically rivalries in college football. Now, in our opening segment, we'll be talking to the Dean of Sports Knowledge here at the Sports History Network, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch. We also talk to. We'll be talking about one of the most legendary games in the history of college football, a game known simply as the game of the century, which was between two bitter rivals, Nebraska and Oklahoma, that took place 50 years ago this past week. And following that, we'll be our top five. And in this show, we'll be ranking the five best college football rivalries. And finally, in our shout out. In our rivalry edition, we'll be highlighting a rivalry that is very near and dear to my heart. And it's not only between two football teams, but it's also between two marching bands, as well as a cultural celebration that is synonymous with my home state. So sit back, relax, and turn up the volume. This is the Historically Speaking Sports, a member of the Sports History Network. The Pigskin Tales Podcast is all about the lesser-known pro football players. Yes, there are stories about the ones we know, like Brad Tarkenton and Harold Red Grange. But, have you ever heard of Ernie Nevers? How about Dave Osborne or even Grady Alderman? These men created their own path to the NFL. How did they do it? Listen to the Pigskin Tales podcast. Now streaming on your favorite music platform. Go to pigskintails.com. Hello and welcome back to this week's edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And right now we have a very special guest on board. And is his one of the, this guy right here is a very, very close friend of mine. And he is, I, I guess you consider him like a, something of a semi-mentor to me in the podcasting field. You know, I he is the, uh, he runs the pigskin 
uh, he runs the pigskin uh, dispatch. I call, I affectionately call him Boss Hog, you know, of the pigskin dispatch. Uh, there's none other than Darren Hayes. Darren, welcome in. Hey, this is quite a privilege. Thank you for the kind words, Dana. It's uh, quite an honor to be with you on Historically Speaking. Yeah, man. Um, I enjoy your work so much on your podcast and stuff like that. Tell us about what, a little bit of what you're working on in your podcast right now. Well, we, as always, we have our, our everyday podcast where we tell about football history every single day of the year. Uh, it goes from any you know game events, uh, big events off the field, Hall of Famers. We, we celebrate their birthdays, remember them. We just want to preserve football history, and that's the one way we do it uh, one day at a time. We also have a whole bunch of other different series going on because we're podcasting every single day of the week. Uh, you know, uh, Usually during the middle of the week, we have our uh, Scandals and Scoundrels. We're talking about some of the darker times of football, some scandalous affairs and some people maybe that, that did some things that weren't so nice. Uh, we like looking at the early pro football teams at the beginning of the week, and we have a lot of guests uh, coming on to talk about that and uh, just have a lot of fun with the game of football. All right, man. I mean, I, I've listened to a few of those, and uh, I'm going to tell you, your little scoundrels and scandal episodes are really interesting, I, I have to admit. Uh, but today when we have you on, we're going to be talking about one game in particular, and this game took place actually 50 years ago this week. And it is one of, I, in my opinion, one of many games that are considered the game of the century. But I think that this one may be the best game of all of those in college football listed as, quote, unquote, the game of the century. And, and again, it took place 50 years ago this past week. And we're talking about Oklahoma versus Nebraska in Norman, Oklahoma, one versus two. You know, tell us about the lead up to that game. You know, talk about the both of those teams, if you could. Well, I, I guess one thing we have to appreciate is that uh, both teams, uh, they, they don't play in the same uh, conference now. Uh, of course, Nebraska's in the Big Ten, uh, Oklahoma's in the Big 12, but uh, it was called the Big Eight back then. And these two teams were, were arch rivals. They just did not like each other very much. Uh, Oklahoma really had uh, something under their, their crawl going into this game because Nebraska was the defending national champions coming into this game. And both teams were just powerhouses. Uh, came met on this Thanksgiving Day in 1971, both undefeated. So it's just the build up to the game, just looking at that, it's enormous. And uh, the, the coaching staffs, the players, uh, everything was just tremendous for this game. I mean, you think about a college football game taking place on Thanksgiving Day. Normally, you know, during our lifetimes, you would think Thanksgiving Day, that's exclusively for the NFL. Now, I do remember some college games taking place later in the evening or at night on Thanksgiving growing up. But during the day, afternoon, mid-afternoon, was exclusive for pro football, at least do it, you know, doing, you know, within the last 30, 40 years. But this 1971, this game took place in the middle of the afternoon on Thanksgiving Day. And you also had the two Thanksgiving Day games on the NFL, too. So that was pre- that was some pretty cool football watching on that day. For, and, you know, particularly you know, one versus two in college football. Then you got two NFL games that same going on pretty much literally at the same time. Yeah, it, it, the buildup for this. Now, they, I, we are so lucky, and I'm not sure who uh, got this on there, but somebody put on YouTube the entire game. I mean, the commercials of the day, the pregame, the postgame, the halftime shows. I mean, it's like you're watching a game 50 years ago. 
And this game was built up. They, they had over a half hour of pregame with the announcers that were in the stadium. It wasn't, you know, back to New York or LA. It was mm-hmm. in stadium. It was built up, you know, more so than probably the Super Bowl was that year. Just a tremendous coverage by ABC. Yeah, Chris Schenkel and Bill uh, and Chris Schenkel and the color commentary. I can't think of his name right off my Bud Wilkinson. Bud, Bud Wilkinson, former yeah, Oklahoma coach. That's right. You know, Oklahoma coach, you know, had that 47 game winning streak with Oklahoma, you know, some years earlier. And you had Bill Fleming on the sidelines and a half hour of just the announcers breaking down the game and stuff before the game. That's something that you don't really see anymore. And and just watching something like that is just for the younger generation to see what football was like on television 50 years ago. I think that was a real treat to check out. No, it definitely is. And they had a great spot in that pregame show. They took the Wilkinson out of the booth, put him down on a field, talking with Bill Fleming, the sideline reporter. And they were going over uh, both Nebraska's offensive scheme and Oklahoma with their wishbone scheme. And it was just great hearing your old football coach talk some ball and uh, tremendous education for anybody that's a historian of football. It's a great, great uh, piece. Now, if you're just in case wondering, who was playing on Thanksgiving Day that year, 1971, in the NFL. Detroit played Kansas City in Detroit at Old Brick Stadium, and Detroit won 32-21, if you can imagine that, Detroit winning on Thanksgiving Day. Wow, and Kansas side. City was pretty good back in 1971. Yeah, and, and Kansas through. City was had won the Super Bowl a couple of years earlier, you know. And in the, and in the other game, Dallas, the Dallas game, Dallas had beaten the Rams 28-21, and I do believe, I think that was like one of the first games at the new Texas Stadium, if I'm not mistaken. I think Texas Stadium had just opened that year. So that was pretty interesting with all of that going on. And then you got, oh, by the way, one versus two in college football that very same day. Yeah, that's a great, great day of football, especially being a holiday. Uh, I was a little bit too young to enjoy it. I think it was about a week before my fifth birthday. So I'm sure I was doing other things than uh, watching a football game, but now I wish I was. (laughs) Well, Nebraska and Oklahoma, Nebraska was, like you mentioned, they were the defending national champs coached by Bob Devaney, who had been there for a number of years, you know, and he had been won the national championship the year before they had like a the, the 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 staple of that team was their defense the infamous black shirt defense you know talk about that nebraska team if you could well i, I guess if you're gonna start about talking about the defense for nebraska that year you got to talk about the big guy in the middle because uh again abc did something that uh I don't know if I've ever seen a, a player highlighted as much. They had a camera dedicated to Rich Glover, who they called middle guard back then. We would call it a nose tackle or or maybe a two technique. Uh, he was playing a little bit, you know, off the center. And boy, this this was a man's man in the middle. He was just causing disruption all day long up the middle. Uh, poor Greg Pruitt. Uh, he was, you know, the, the catalyst, the running back for out of that wishbone for Oklahoma. He kept uh, trying to run a gaps and Glover was just all over him. But you know, Glover was featured because he had another All-American right across from him at center for Oklahoma. They had uh, Brahaney and uh, Glover, I think, pretty much got the better of Brahaney too. just a tremendous uh, defensive stand by, by Nebraska and really led by uh, Rich Glover. You know, yeah, you know, um, that Nebraska has seven first team all Big Eight selections and four All Americans. You talked about, 
You know, you talked about Glover on defense, which was the which was pretty much the 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 control tower, if you will, of that defense. You know, you had you know several other great players. You had four, like I said, four All Americans on that team, and then on offense. You had Taggy, Jeff Taggy, the quarterback, and tailback Jeff Kinney, and then the explosive Johnny the Jet Rogers, who was in the running for the Heisman Trophy that year. Yeah, he didn't win it that year. He won it the following year, but That's right. just uh, he really put some uh, great showmanship on display. And uh, I'm sure we're going to be talking about him and some of his plays, especially the punt return he had was just phenomenal. I don't know if I've ever seen a punt return any better than Johnny Rogers uh, returning. But- yeah, they called him the Jet, Johnny the Jet Rogers, and he had one of the greatest, like, people say that that might be one of the greatest punt returns in the, in the history of all of college football, you know, when he got uh, when he got loose in the first quarter, which was actually the first score of the game, happened early part of the first quarter. Yeah, I mean, he had, I think I counted four Oklahoma defenders around him when he caught the ball, and one made contact within a half second of him catching the ball. He shakes that tackle. Uh, starts running to his right, and then another Oklahoma defender is about ready to bury him, and he jump cuts to his left and just takes off and turns those afterburners on, uh, gets to the sideline, and he's gone. Uh, there was one uh, controversial block that people still talk about on that play, and as a, my former official, I'm a former official, so I look at things uh, pretty closely on that, and I think it was a good no call. Uh, I think you had a, a player for Oklahoma that was uh, – facing his def- uh, blocker and he turned at the last second the the defender the uh, blocker for uh, Nebraska hit him and I, he fell forward towards uh, Rogers I don't I think that was a good no call on that you know and then Oklahoma had you the the, the aforementioned Gray Pruitt and the wishbone coach was Chuck Fairbank who who's religiously devoted to the wishbone in fact when he tried to go to the Patriots a couple of years after he left um a couple of years he left Oklahoma, he went to the Patriots with Jim Plunkett at quarterback and tried to install the wishbone in the NFL. And it didn't really work all that well, but Chuck Fairbanks, pretty much known throughout history as something of a defensive coordinator, defensive type, but he loved the wishbone and he loved the running game. And that was evident right there with this Oklahoma team. Yeah, I think at Oklahoma, he had a secret weapon, especially in this game, because his uh, offensive coordinator was Barry Switzer. Uh, Barry Switzer with a full head of hair made I had and uh, (laughs) Switzer I think was the real statistician or a strategist strategist I can't get that out of my mouth uh, (laughs) on on this uh, wishbone offense because they had a really gritty quarterback in Jack Mildren uh, outstanding back in Greg Pruitt who's most famously probably the Cleveland Browns when he went to the NFL and they just had some some beasts at at running back uh, with them Um, you know just just going into this game uh, this wishbone offense, you know, Pruitt ha- had f- 150 rushes for four, over 1400 yards. Mildred, the quarterback, 153 rushes for over a thousand yards. Uh, Leon Crosswhite, who mainly played the up back or the fullback, 110 rushes, 563 yards. And then he had a couple guys that would come in in relief. Roy Bell, he had over almost 500 yards going in that game. And uh, Joe Wiley, who had uh, over 300 yards coming in that game. All of them had, Averaged over five yards per carry for the season. So pretty potent offense for Oklahoma. And you have to talk about the offensive line. I mean, you can't have, I mean, you can't have all those backs 
gaining over five yards per carry without a solid offensive line. And a lot of it was through Barry Switzer's coaching. As you said, now Switzer would take over for Fairbanks down the road and become just a legend at Oklahoma. But at that time, he was a very little-known assistant coach who had devised this wishbone offense and this wishbone system that was pretty much – that was outstanding and put Oklahoma back on the map as far as like a college football power because they had been down for for a couple of years you know before this game yeah they definitely did uh, I'm I'm shocked with the successful as uh, Switzer was with this I'm surprised that when he became the Cowboys coach that he didn't have uh, you know Emmett Smith uh, running out of the wishbone behind Aikman or something you know? but I know that probably was in the it, he probably was thinking about it he probably I'm was sure thinking was. about it you know you know we had Aikman at quarterback but I, I don't think he wanted to you know he had Darryl Johnson at fullback which was you know not bad you know right, but right. Um, yeah, I, I know he probably was thinking about it. Let's just say that. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he probably was a different era, different era. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just that the tremendous play. I mean, uh, that Mildren and uh, the other quarterback, Taggy for Nebraska. Those are two of the grittiest quarterbacks. Uh, they, they would fit right in in what uh, the way uh, the RPOs are played today. Because these guys, uh, they um, uh, Taggy was just a big dude. He was like. 215 pounds and uh, pretty, pretty quick and had a great arm. And, you know, Mildren was just a, a little smaller guy, but boy, could he run a fake uh, you know, on that wishbone and just take off when he found a hole. Great, great option play players. Both of them were. Now, when you think now as a kid growing up in the eighties, like I did, when you think of Oklahoma, Nebraska, you think of wishbone, you think of options. And I think option option plays and stuff like that. They that was kind of like the genesis of that rivalry. Like when it became really big, this game was the genesis of that rivalry that went on between you know Barry Switzer and you know Tom Osborne in the eighties and late seventies, early eighties. And this was the genesis of that rivalry, where at least when it really became part of the nation's consciousness. Oh, I definitely think so. That was, I think that really took college football, especially televised college football into a new era. Uh, just with uh, some of the things uh, that a- we talked about earlier that ABC did, and there's a couple other things I'd like to discuss here in, in a second, but what they did with the, the football game really spread into the pro game, I think. And uh, like you said, these players and these great offensive uh, systems, these great defensive players and defensive systems, and these outstanding coaches really transformed uh, this game and uh, took, took, had helped college football really take off into a new generation. Yeah, you was talking about some other things that you had seen, you know, while watching this game. What were some other things that you've seen that was like, like, wow, I didn't, I didn't know they were doing that back then? Well, if we look at it, I mean, think about it. this is 1971. The graphics that ABC kept popping up on the, uh, we call we wouldn't call them graphics now, but the, whatever it was, the white letters that would pop up on the screen. I think that was fairly new technology. And they might have put like a score every once in a while, but they were putting, uh, you know, yards rushing in the first quarter and, you know, the, the teams, what their statistics were, uh, the quarterback stats for the game. They would pop that up throughout the game. Uh, they, they'd throw the lineups at the beginning of each half up by uh, who's the starting line uh, linemen were and everybody like they do now. But that was pretty new technology uh, for television. It wasn't the first game they did it on, but it wasn't more than a few years old at that time that's I mean, one whenever, thing that they did whenever i see games like that you know games from back then tell you know those, those old games i remember watching 
uh, Michigan, the famous Michigan-Ohio State game from 69. And I remember watching that game once. And the graphics that they showed now, now to say my, my 16-year-old son, he'd look at it and say, that looks like prehistoric. It looks like something that I could do on Photoshop or something. But back then, that was like cutting-edge technology. That was like, oh, wow, I didn't know they would do that, you know? And... You know, watching old games like that, it just gives you a little sense of nostalgia when you see, you know, when you see stuff like that. And then you mentioned that they had some of the old vintage commercials doing that. Whoever did this, you know, kudos to them because I wouldn't mind just going back just to seeing the commercials from back then, you know, what they were doing. But, you know, uh, but the game itself was, was, was rather exciting. It was a back and forth struggle between Oklahoma and, and um, Nebraska. Yeah, it, it definitely was. Like we said, they opened up the the scoring on that Johnny Rogers punt return, yeah. and uh, seventy two yards, seventy two yard punt return. Remember how the first score of the game, early part of the first quarter. Yeah, and if you get a chance to watch that highlight, if they uh, during the game they show you know Rogers gets in, he's standing in the back of the end zone, his teammates come down to celebrate with him, just a little touchdown dance he does you know which weren't very common back then just, just tremendous you know great great showmanship <laughs> on it I, I really enjoyed that part of it too mm-hmm. uh, just those little things but johnny rogers I mean, man what, what a stud returner he was and a pass catching threat he was during this whole game too but i was equally impressed the way oklahoma came back though uh, they came back i believe it was the next series after the, that touchdown by uh, nebraska and uh, well, I'm sorry. They they went to drive and kick the field goal their next drive. They did. Uh, uh, but it was uh, right in the uh, near the beginning of the second quarter. They went on an 80 yard, 13 play drive and just really featured that wishbone. And I think what they were doing, their strategy was they knew Glover was going to be a problem, and Brahaney just w- wasn't handling them all the way. So what they did is they ran that option, and you know, poor Greg Pruitt, like I said, they they run a couple plays with Pruitt up the middle. Glover would stuff them, and then uh, you know, Mildred would fake one to Pruitt, fake the pitch, and just take off, you know, off tackle, and you know, get some good gainers there. Mix in a couple passes here and there, and boy, they were really potent offense. Yeah, in the you know, you, you talked about um, Mildred. You know he had uh, two rushing touchdowns. There were actually three rushing touchdowns in this game, um, and Jeff Tag and and, and Jeff uh, Kenny, the other quarterback, could have been the MVP of the game if you really think about it. Oh yeah, Kenny boy, he was just a downhill runner. He was like a Larry Zonka type almost. You know, just the and he played uh-huh. quarterback. That's the thing. He was a big quarterback. At, for, well, at least for the time. Well, in this game, he was playing. He's playing a halfback. He's playing half. Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. They had Taggy playing quarterback. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Equally, equally big in size, but Taggy had some great runs too, because uh, they were running some option. You know, they weren't running a wishbone, but they were running some you know straight up option. And mm-hmm. boy, Kenny was getting stuffed at first because you know Oklahoma had some some great defenders. I don't know if we we got a chance to talk about Oklahoma's defense yet, but they had the first of the Selman brothers. You know that great run of Selman brothers that yeah, uh, uh, Lu- oh, yeah. Lucius Lucius. That's and, right, Lucius. <laughs> yeah, Lucius was uh he was he was he was, made his name be said a few times by Schenkel on that, and uh, just some of the other great defenders that they had. Um, going into that game, it was just a tremendous. You know, it wasn't it was not a weak defense by any means. Uh, they were they were equally up to the task that their Oklahoma offense was going into this game. You know, Jeff Kenny has, like I said, Jeff Kenny has scored four touchdowns. But that defense for Oklahoma, you know, 
and even though the score may not have indicated that it was, you know, a, a very defensive oriented game, but there was some really serious hitting going on in that game because you mentioned before that these are two programs that do not like each other. You know, this was, they had a lot of animus towards each other. It's Nebraska, it's Oklahoma. It's, it's, it's going to be hard hitting, especially when you have those two offenses, those two teams, those two programs going at it, especially with number one versus number two. Oh yeah, they were they were just going at it. I mean, that was, that was great to watch. You know, sometimes you watch games and you're saying, "Boy, I can't wait to watch this offense go against this defense." Well, it was equal of both sides. I was excited when both teams had the ball, and I was excited for both uh, defenses to watch the plays that they were making because there was playmakers, multiple playmakers on both sides of the ball for both teams. And that just really made the game even that more exciting and fun to watch. And uh, like I said, if everybody needs to do themselves a favor this holiday season when they have a little bit of downtime, I'm going to put that up on YouTube. You know, it's a free watch, and it's about three and a half hours of just great football and great nostalgic uh, commercials and everything like we said. But, uh, yeah, tremendous game. Now, when you talk about, you know, everybody wants to compare eras. Okay, the way that the game was played then compared to now, what was like if somebody that was just watching it for the first time, a game like this from back then, what is the first thing that you think that they would see? That's, you know, wow. that's, that's a difference from today's game as compared to that game from from 1971. But there's a couple of things that is sort of outside of the, the field lines that I want to talk about, uh, if I could, that really take you back. Um, I call them sort of the periphery observations of the game. First of all, they, when the two teams enter the field, it's, it's really foreign to us. I was like, my, my mouth opened up because especially being a former official, we would you know not want this to happen, but both teams came in uh, uh, from one end zone uh, almost simultaneously. Uh, they, when they crisscrossed near the end zone and wow. going to their sideline. So they cross paths and, you know, all hundred players or whatever they had on each sideline crossing the entire field, crisscrossing, go to their sideline. That was one thing I said, boy, that could be a problem, especially these teams don't like each other. So I don't think you'd see that anymore. Uh, we talked about the TV graphics, you know, being nostalgic. Uh, there was also a five man officiating crew on this game. And you don't really notice it because these guys really did a great job. And there wasn't the passing in the spread formations that we have today. That's sort of what forced uh, now nowadays uh, college and pro ga- games have seven or eight man official officiating crews. These guys did it with five and uh, d- just did a tremendous job. And, you know, the, just some of the mechanics are, are outdated and things that uh, when I st- started officiating in the the mid 80s it was very similar to the way these guys were doing the game and you know sometime around the 90s when uh, the high school and college games started really picking up they they changed that and went to a bigger uh, officiating cruise but that's some things that you'll probably notice a little bit but the other thing is what i'm going to call the pageantry the the cheerleaders that they went through quite a bit you know i think uh we had some some guys that were interested in the young ladies on the camera crew uh but the nebraska's uh, cheerleading sweaters they look like a combination of uh, rugby shirts and candy striper uniforms. <laughs> Just, but I thought they were fantastic. The big, bold, red and white stripes on it. It looked like they somebody took Betsy Ross's flag and cut it up and cheering. But they're outstanding. <laughs> I, I love them. I love them. And, and Oklahoma's sideline, their cheerleaders. You know, they had their traditional cheerleading outfits on, but 
that they had. It must have been a chilly day because they had these all the, the ladies had uh, white earmuffs on, like white fuzzy earmuffs. And it was just uh, really stood out and uh, just aided in the pageantry of the game. And I thought it made it uh, you know, that more exciting with all the colorful spectacles like that to see. Yeah, I was. um yeah, I noticed that when I had watched it one time before that it was a pretty cold and pretty blustery day. In fact, I was talking uh, just a while ago to Ray Durbin, and he said that he actually attended that game. And he said that he went there thinking it was going to be a, something of a warm day, Thanksgiving, Oklahoma, you know, maybe a little bit warm. He went there with a very thin turtleneck and a sport coat on because he was Thinking he was thinking he was looking fly or whatever, but he was <laughs> came in there with a very thin um, turtleneck and a sport coat. And by the midway through the second quarter, he said he was absolutely freezing, you know, because it was something of a partly sunny, partly overcast kind of day from what I remember. But it was blush. It was like windy and cold, you know. It wasn't really conducive to passing, you know. But when you have these two teams that were playing at that time, you ran the ball a lot, you know. Um, and that was their trademark: running the football. Oklahoma was running the option, you know. The uh, running the wishbone, I should say. Nebraska was running the option, you know. And I think they were running it out of the eye, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was out of the eye quite a bit. Sometimes they just had, you know, a single back uh, back there behind the quarterback. But, you know, it, it's amazing, though, as great as both these teams ran, they really set up some great play action passing, too. Uh, I believe uh, Mildred ended up having two touchdown passes to uh, the gentleman number 12. I forget. John Harrison. John Harrison. I mean, tremendous plays to him. And, of course, you know, Johnny Rogers caught – some great pass plays from uh, Taggy that uh, kept his team moving too. So the run really uh, uh, set up some, some great passing opportunities for these teams. Okay. Now let's you know, fast forward to the, to the fourth quarter here. Um, heading into the fourth quarter, um, Oklahoma had a 28 to 24 lead, if I'm not mistaken. Oklahoma was leading 20. I mean, Nebraska was leading 28 to 24 heading into the fourth and the fourth quarter became was a very became very exciting especially closer toward the end of the game oh yeah i mean oklahoma uh, they got the ball shortly into the fourth quarter and went on this long drive and it culminated down to they were i think they had uh it was like fourth and six from their 10 yard line or something if i remember correctly and you know it was pretty dramatic it was like seven minutes left in the game they knew they they didn't want to kick the field goal because they're down four. They, you know they're not you're not sure if you're going to get the ball back because Nebraska eats up some clock too with their offense. Yes. And uh, he that's where one of those uh, Mildred passing touchdowns to to uh, our, our number twelve there, uh, on fourth Harrison. and six. Yeah, John Harrison. Just uh, I mean that was some some big kahunas to run a play like that, especially when you're a, a running offense. It was sixteen. A it was play. a sixteen yard pass that Mildred threw to John Harrison, making the score twenty uh, thirty one to twenty eight in favor of Oklahoma. Yeah, that so that's what I think right around seven minutes left on that, and then mm-hmm. uh, you know Nebraska gets the ball, and you know you just start. Uh, seeing them just start pounding out yardage and churning yardage, you know, oh boy, something good's happening here. And there was a couple close plays in that last drive by Nebraska where uh, Oklahoma thought they, they recovered fumbles. On yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, but again, they, you know, the slow motion, even that day, especially there was one down by the goal line uh, that Nebraska had inside the five. 
I think it was like a play before their scoring play. And uh, definitely uh, Kenny's knee was on the ground when the ball came out. So great call by the officials. They were all over that. And uh, wow, just uh, I was on the edge of my seat and I even knew the result of the game. It's funny whenever you watch games like that, because especially if they're exciting games, you know the outcome of the game, but you want to know, okay, how did they get there? How did they get to this point? You know, how do you, and that's one of the things that I'm drawn to when like games like that, you know, because you already know who won, but you've kind of like, okay, let me check out and see how it turned out. And, and you're like, okay, well, why did they do this? Oh, they, oh, they check that out. You know, that, that sort of thing. And that's one of the reasons why I'm drawn to, you know, these types of games and, and, and watching these games, you know, afterwards, you know, cause 1971, not to show my age, but that was two years before my birth. So, <laughs> I, but at the same time, I've read and watched so much thing, so many things about this game because I think that Football, college football in the 1970s for me is like nirvana. It's like, this is, I love like this, that old school smash mouth football, especially college football playing, you know, from the 1970s. It was like a lot of run, very few passes, smash mouth, old school football. And that's what you saw in this game right here. Yeah, you definitely did. But the, uh, even, uh, I think Nebraska scored and took the final score, made a score 35 31 with about a minute 20 to play. So Oklahoma got the ball back. Now, you got to, if you're watching this whole game, you got to flash back to the end of the first half where Oklahoma was uh, down by like 10 points and they got the ball with like 33 seconds left on, somewhere in their own territory, 25 yard line, let's say. And they went down and scored a touchdown at, right before the half. And so with a minute, 20, minute 30 left in the fourth quarter, you know, people had to be sitting there saying, oh, my gosh, Oklahoma can do this again. They're only down four and get this touchdown. They scored quick, quick on this great Nebraska defense in the first half. Well, Nebraska and especially Mr. Glover, they stepped up and on, I believe, uh, second down and third down, they came up with two gigantic sacks that uh, really put the Oklahoma in a hole to go for it. It was like fourth and 26 on the fourth down play and they batted that ball down. So just a great ending to the game too. Uh, people were on the edge of their seats. I'm sure. Now that was not the season finale for both of these teams. They, they still had one regular season game left before they were going to the bowl games. Now back then they already knew what bowl games they were going to, both of them, okay? Nebraska was heading, had already clinched their ticket to go to the Rose Bowl to play Alabama, which was very interesting because Nebraska was going to play Alabama in the Orange Bowl, and Oklahoma was going to go to New Orleans to play Auburn in the Sugar Bowl. Now, wouldn't that be the, the, now that would have been like an awesome top four if they would have had that back then because Alabama played Auburn that same week and then Oklahoma played Nebraska that same man then you can you imagine the the the, the 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 scheduling on television if they had the scheduling back then if you had those four those those two games you know like Oklahoma Nebraska then like the following day or whatever uh, the Iron Bowl I mean come on you can't get better anything better than that. <laughs> And, and all four teams were undefeated at that point. Going exactly. Into that That's what I'm weekend. saying. <laughs> yeah. For the top five, right? Right. In those, those two games. Yeah, hey, oh, by the uh, way, Auburn's quarterback won the Heisman, you know, <laughs> yeah. Pat Sullivan. He, he won the Heisman right. that year. So that was some really must see TV that weekend. Must see college football that weekend. 
1971. And Nebraska would end up finishing the season by blowing out Hawaii 45 to three. And then Oklahoma would blast Oklahoma State in that final in Bedlam. And um, I think that I think the game was in Stillwater, if I'm not mistaken, that year. But they but as a postscript, Nebraska would move on to play Alabama in the Orange Bowl, trying to win their second consecutive national championship. Yeah, just a great, uh, great season for Nebraska. But Oklahoma, let's not forget, I mean, they, they played Nebraska tough, but they played five top 20 teams that season in their 10-game season, during the regular season. Uh, the number 17, USC, early in the season. Number three, Texas. Number uh, six, Colorado. Of course, number one, Nebraska. And number five, Auburn uh, in the postseason. I mean, that, that's when I mean, half your schedules in the top 20 of, you know, the hundred and some teams in division one football at the time, <laughs> that's a pretty uh, hefty schedule to, to have to play. And finished with only one loss. Right. To the number one team. <laughs> and finished with only one loss. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. that's, that's amazing. You know, and then Nebraska clinched their second consecutive national championship by beating Alabama, you know, beating Bear Bryant in Alabama in the Orange Bowl. Yeah. And, Oklahoma, I mean, really offensively, they, I think they had almost like a hundred yards more of total offense than Nebraska, but Nebraska's defense came up big with uh, three fumble recoveries. And uh, that was another interesting thing. There was the first fumble recovery uh, Nebraska picked up and took into the end zone. But at the time, the rule was that the defense couldn't advance a fumble. Can you imagine that? Wow. Now that I didn't know that I yeah. didn't know back then that you couldn't advance a fumble on defense. That, that's, yeah, and, that's something. And I forgot about it because I see the dude for Nebraska pick up the ball and go down the sidelines and he made a great run to get in there because the Oklahoma guys like trailing him the whole way and trying to get him out of bounds. He just would not go out of bounds and, you know, stuck in there, gets it in the end zone and the officials are waving it back. I'm like going, what happened? You know, and the, and uh, Chris Schenkel's like, well, yeah, you can't advance a fumble on defense. I'm like, oh, that's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but that was the game of the century, man. Um, Oklahoma, Nebraska, which was, we start off a lot of great memories for me growing up, you know, watching Nebraska, Oklahoma. But of course it was years, years later with Tom Osborne going up against Barry Switzer, you know, but the offenses had never changed. It was pretty much the same type of offense that I grew up watching in the eighties, you know, but the, the Genesis was in 1971 with this game known as the game of the century. Darren, I really appreciate you coming on, man, for reminiscing about this game here take, that took place 50 years ago. And, um, and you're welcome to come back at any time, man. Dana, it was quite my pleasure, and uh, yeah, the, the invite goes both ways, my friend. You, you know you're always welcome to come into the pig pen, too, so thank you very much for inviting me. All right, and we'll be right back right after this.
we're back and you are checking out our college football rivalry edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. You just heard from the host of the Pigskin Dispatch, Darren Hayes, talking about the 50th anniversary of the game of the century between Nebraska and Oklahoma, taking place in Norman, Oklahoma in 1971. Now, before we get on with the rest of the show, one sign that we're growing here at Historically Speaking Sports and the Sports History Network is we have a sponsor, which is newspapers.com. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a serious sports fan like myself. And if you are into sports history, you really do need to check out newspapers.com. At newspapers.com, you get access to over 640 million pages and more worth of news from the United States, from Canada, England, Scotland, dating back to going all the way back to 1798 and from that point on. Uh, get one free week subscription to newspapers.com by visiting the Sports History Network slash newspapers. And with the paid subscription, you also be helping to support the production of this and other Sports History Network shows. Remember, sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers is the link that you need to follow. Also, check out our Twitter feed at historicallysp2 for your daily dose of sports history. And also, you could drop us a line or two at our email at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget to hit that subscribe button wherever you hear this podcast so you can get new episodes every week or whenever they come out. At this point of the show is our top five. And usually, we talk about the top five moments in sports history from the week that was. Yet, we're going to do things a little bit different in this episode. This week... We're talking about rivalries, and this episode's top five would deal with the best football football rivalries in college, and each one of these historic rivalries have been at one time or another decided the national champion. So without further ado, here is the top five college football rivalries. Number five, Texas versus Oklahoma, known as the Red River Shootout. Now, these two teams first played each other in 1900, and the rivalry has been renewed annually and uninterrupted since 1929, for a total of 117 games as of this year. The rivalry is commonly referred to as the Red River Shootout, or in some cases, the Red River Rivalry, or the Red River Showdown. The game has been played on the second Saturday in October since 1934, with the exception of 2018. Since 1932, the game's site has always been the Cotton Bowl inside Fair Park in Dallas. The winner is is the regular season matchup, the winner of this season matchup, I should say, receives the Golden Hat, which is a gold 10-gallon hat formerly of bronze. Now, the trophy is kept by the winning school's athletic department until the next season. The Longhorns leads the overall series 62, 50, and 5. Number 4, Notre Dame versus USC. The Notre Dame-USC rivalry is customarily played on the Saturday following Thanksgiving Day when the game is played in Los Angeles or on the second Saturday of October when the game is played in South Bend. The two teams began playing each other in 1926 when the Irish defeated the Trojans 13-12. Now through the years, both have traditionally been counted among the elite programs in college football. With, with the schools having won a combined 39 national ch- championships, and 14 Heisman trophies. This football rivalry, which began in 1926, is considered 
one of the most important and is often called the greatest intersectional rivalry in college football. The rivalry has been played every year from 1926, with the exception of 1943 and 1945 when the game was canceled during World War II. And in 2020, when the Pac-12 conference canceled all non-conference games in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The COVID-19 pandemic therefore interrupted a streak of 73 consecutive years the game had been played. In 20, this year's contest marked the first time in series history that two consecutive games between the rivals had been played in South Bend, Indiana, although the games would not be played in consecutive years. Several times the series, the school, the winner of the series has gone on to win or play for a college football national title. Both schools claim 11 national titles, while the NCAA recognizes 13 for 13 Notre Dame championships and nine for USC. Moreover, both schools are acclaimed for their All-Americans, 101 for Notre Dame and 80 for USC. College Football Hall of Famers, 52 from Notre Dame and 35 from USC. And Pro Football Hall of Famers, 13 from Notre Dame and 12 from USC. The rivals also account for the highest number of players taken in the NFL draft of any school. USC has 502 players taken and Notre Dame has 495. No rivalry in college football accounts for as many combined honors. The teams play for the Jewish Shillelagh, a trophy that goes home with the winning team each year. Notre Dame leads the series 47-37-5. Despite many close games, the series have been dominant, have, had, have seen dominant runs by both sides. USC went 12-2-2 from 1967 through 1982, while Notre Dame went undefeated 11-0-1 from 1983 through 1995. And USC went undefeated 8-0 from 2002 through 2009. However, Notre Dame and USC have defeated the other in landmark games, enabling one of them to move on to a national title. Both teams have also played spoiler to each other several times. Number three, Army versus Navy. The Black Knights or cadets and midshipmen each represent their service's oldest officer commissioning sources. As such, the game has come to embody the spirit of inter-service rivalry between the United States Armed Forces. The game marks the end of the college football regular season and the third and the third and final game of the season's Commander-in-Chief Trophy Series, which includes the Air Force Falcons of the United States Air Force Academy located in Colorado Springs. The Army-Navy game is one of the most traditional and enduring rivalries in college football and has been frequently attended by sitting U.S. presidents. The game has been nationally televised each year since 1945 on either ABC, CBS, or NBC. CBS has televised the game since 1996 and has the rights to broadcast through 2028. Instant Replay made its American debut in the 1963 Army-Navy game highlighting Heisman Trophy winner Roger Starbuck. Since 2009, the series, the game had been held on the Saturday following the FBS Conference Championship weekend. The game has been held in multiple locations, but outside the 1926 game in Chicago and the 1983 game in Pasadena, it has been played primarily in the Northeast, most frequently in Philadelphia, followed by New York and in Baltimore. Through 2020, through the 2020 meeting, Navy leads the series 61, 53, and 7, and the rivalry between Annapolis and West Point, while friendly, is intense. 
The phrases beat Navy and beat Army are ingrained in the respective institutions and have become a symbol of competitiveness, not just in the Army-Navy game, but in the service of the country. The phrases are often used at the close of informal at the close of informal letters by graduates of both academies. A long-standing tradition at the Army Naval football game is to conduct a formal prisoner exchange. As part of the pregame activities, the prisoners are the cadets and midshipmen currently spending the semester studying at the sister academy. After the exchange, the students have a brief reprieve to enjoy the game with their comrades. The American National Anthem is sung by members of the United States Military Academy and the United States Naval Academy choirs. And at the end of the game, both teams' alma maters, <coughs> excuse me, are sung or played in sung. The winning team stands alongside the losing team and faces the losing academy students. Then the losing team accompanies the winning team facing their students. This is done in a show of mutual respect and solidarity. Since the winning team's alma mater is always played last, the phrase to sing second has become synonymous with the winning of the rivalry game. Number two, Michigan versus Ohio State. Simply known as the game, both teams are considered to be among the most successful in NCAA Division football. It has gathered profound national interest as many of the games determined Big Ten and many of the games have determined the Big Ten Conference title. In 2000, the game was ranked by ESPN as the greatest North American sports rivalry ever. The, games, the team first met in 1897 and the game has been played annually and uninterrupted from 1918 until 2020 when it was not held due to, corona, due to the coronavirus pandemic. The game has been played at the end of the regular season since 1935. And then since 1918, the game site has alternated between Columbus, Ohio and Ann Arbor, Michigan. It has also been played in Ohio Stadium since 1922 and Michigan Stadium since 1927. Through 2010, Ohio State and Michigan have decided the Big Ten Conference Championship game between themselves on 22 different occasions and have affected the determination of the conference title an additional 27 times. For many years, the game aired on ABC, usually at the 12 p.m. Eastern time slot, and for many years, ESPN College Game Day has originated that weekend from the game site. Beginning with the 2017 season, the game aired on Fox as a result of that network acquiring the Big Ten's Tier 1 rights in their most recent broadcasting contract. On Game Day, the, and Game Day competitor Big Noon Kickoff originates from the game site. And in 2021, ESPN and Fox's free game shows both originated, from the same, originated at the same time from Ann Arbor. The height of the rivalry between the Michigan and Ohio State was called the 10-year war between Ohio State coach Woody Hayes and Michigan coach Bo Schembechler from 1969 through 1978. The 10-year war was a series of college football games in the Michigan-Ohio State rivalry and the game pitted the, those two coaches who are both college football Hall of Famers. In most contests, the Big Ten Conference Championship and a trip to the Rose Bowl were at stake. The rivalry between the two kicked off in dramatic fashion as the Wolverines upset the top-ranked Buckeyes 24-12 in one of the biggest upsets in college football history. And it was done on national television to give the country its first taste of, the first taste of this intense rivalry. 
1973, both teams entered undefeated with the winner guaranteed a trip to the Rose Bowl. The rivals played to a 10-10 tie in Ann Arbor and on November 24th and the athletic directors of the other Big Ten school institutions were forced to vote on the Big Ten representative for the bowl game. In a secret ballot, Ohio State won the vote to the outrage of Michigan athletic officials and fans. Schembechler argued that Michigan was robbed of its on-the-field achievements and for months afterwards, Ohio State newspapers were flooded with angry Wolverine letters and threats of lawsuits. Woody coined the phrase, that state up north, or that team up north, so he would not have to say the word Michigan. He was famous for his intense hatred of all things Michigan. During the 10-year war, Ohio State and Michigan shared the Big Ten title six times. And between 1976 and 1978, Michigan won the game each year and Ohio State failed to score a touchdown in each of those contests. The quote-unquote war ended in 1978 when Woody Hayes was fired at the end of the season after he punched a Clemson player in the throat during the Gator Bowl. In 1978, the game was won by Michigan 14-3, giving Schimbeckler a record of 5-4-1 against Hayes. Overall, Michigan leads the series 59-51-6, with their last meeting taking place this past weekend with Michigan winning 42-27. And number one, Auburn versus Alabama. This series is considered one of the most important football rivalries in American sports. As the rivalry which started in 1893 was played for many years at Legion Field in Birmingham, Alabama, the name Al in Birmingham, Alabama. The name Iron Bowl comes from Birmingham's historic role in the steel industry. Auburn coach Shug Jordan is considered, is credited with actually coining it when he was asked by reporters in 1964 how he would deal with the disappointment of not taking his team to a bowl game. He responded, we've got our bowl game. We have it every year. It's the Iron Bowl in Birmingham. Alabama has a winning record against all Southeastern Conference teams and leads the series with Auburn 47-37-1. The rivalry has a law has been one of the most heated in college in, in all the country. It is, the, it is all the more heated because the two schools have been among the nation's elite teams for most of the time since the 1950s. And together, they count for 36 SEC titles, 28 by Alabama and 8 by Auburn. Both of those are among the winningest programs in major college football history. Alabama is third all-time in total wins among Division I FBS schools, while Auburn is 13. Some of the most notable games in NBA and NCAA history took place in this rivalry. In 1964, it was the first Iron Bowl broadcast on national television, led by Hall of Fame quarterback Joe Namath led Alabama to a 21-14 win over Auburn. In 1967 was the first night game in the series. Thunderstorms had soaked Legion Field, making the field extremely muddy, and the game was frequently stopped to clear raincoats and other wet weather gear from the field. Late in the game, Alabama quarterback Ken Stabler ran 47 yards for a touchdown to give Alabama a slim 7-3 victory. This run became known in Alabama lore as the run in the mud. In 1972, down 16-13 late in the game, Auburn blocked not one, but two punts and returned both of them for touchdowns, leading to an improbable 17-16 Auburn win, coining a new phrase among Auburn fans, punt, bama, punt. In August of 2010, ESPN had ranked this game 
the eighth most painful outcome in college football history. In 2010, number two Auburn defeated number 11 Alabama 28-27 in Tuscaloosa after erasing a 24-0 deficit, the largest comeback win in series history, led by Auburn's Heisman-winning quarterback Cam Newton. The Camback preserved Auburn's undefeated season, which eventually resulted in Auburn's second national championship. And finally, in 2013, with one second remaining and the game tied at 28, Alabama's freshman kicker Adam Griffith attempted a 57-yard potential game-winning field goal. The kick fell short, and Auburn quarterback Chris Davis caught the ball at the back of the end zone and returned it 109 yards for the game-winning touchdown as time expired and what became known as the Kick Six. In 2013, Iron, the 2013 Iron Bowl was, won the ESPY Award for the best game of the year in any sport, and that final play by Davis won the ESPY Award for the best play of the year. For much of the 20th century, the game was played every year in Birmingham, with Alabama winning 34 and Auburn 19. Four of those games were played in Montgomery, and each team winning two. But since 1999, the games have been played either at George Harris Stadium on the campus of Auburn and every odd number year, and at Brian Denny Stadium in Tuscaloosa for every even number year. And that wraps up this week's edition, or this segment, this week's segment, I should say, of the uh, top five. And uh, coming up next is a special college football rivalry shout out. And I'm sending a shout out in another. To another college football rivalry that's just as intense as these that I just described. But in addition to the intense rivalry on the field between these two teams, the rivalry extends to the marching bands as well. It is also a rivalry that I have personally been exposed to in one way or another my whole life. Stay tuned. And we're back with this week's shout out and we are sending a shout out to a college football rivalry that I have been exposed to since the age of seven years old, watching it on local television and later on in person, both as a fan and as a student. And of course, I'm talking about the rivalry known here in the South as the Bayou Classic. Now, the Bayou Classic is the annual college football game between Grambling State University and Southern University. First held under the name Bayou Classic in 1974, where the game was played at Tulane Stadium in New Orleans, although the series itself actually began back in 1932. It is the best-known annual game and rivalry in historically black college and university football and was nationally televised in the United States by NBC from 1991 through 2014. But since 2015, it has aired on NBC Sports Network. The Bayou Classic is the only NCAA Division I football championship subdivision game to be shown regularly on broadcast television. Fans have been known to refer to it as the Black Super Bowl, although that name is not used in any official capacity by either school because of the NFL's uh, restrictions on the use of the term Super Bowl. Both schools typically forego the FCS playoff eligibility to participate in the Bayou Classic. Now, the game is one of two black college football classics to be associated with Thanksgiving weekend. 
The other is the older Turkey Turkey Day Classic between Alabama State and Tuskegee. One of the many activities held in conjunction with the game is the two-part Battle of the Bands, where both universities' marching bands, Grambling's world-famous Tiger Marching Band, and Southern's Human Jukebox perform. Following the Greek Step Show, the two renowned bands stage elaborately choreographed performances on Friday night before the game. The final part is held during the game's, fi- during the game's halftime show. Now, there's no official judge for the Battle of the Bands, but fans would annually argue on who won the Battle of, hour- who won the, Battle of the Bands hours and days after the game, and in some cases, years after. Since 1992, members of South Louisiana's Naval Reserve Officer Training Corps, the NROTC, run with the game ball from Southern's campus in North Baton Rouge to the Superdome in downtown New Orleans for the annual Bayou Classic Motivation Run. The the event happens the day before the game begins and is approximately a 100-mile run that takes between 8 to 10 hours to complete. Members of the NROTC take turns running with the ball while a police escort follow them along the way. Other activities include a press conference, a golf tournament, a coach's luncheon, a concert, uh, tailgating, fashion show, pep rally, alumni functions, college recruitment fair, a Thanksgiving Day parade, and a job fair for graduating students of both schools. Now, since being called the Bayou Classic, both teams are tied with 24 wins apiece. Notable players have played in the game that are known throughout the history of the game, such as future Super Bowl MVP Doug Williams, as well as the likes of Buck Buchanan and Charlie Joyner for Grambling, and Aeneas Williams, Mel Blunt, and Harold Carmichael for Southern. Now, as a kid growing up in Louisiana, you could always tell when it was Bayou Classic time, even in church, where all of the fans from Grambling would sit on one side and the Southern fans would sit on the opposite side. This rivalry goes really deep here in Louisiana, even in church. And that concludes this week's edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I'm really, really grateful and happy that you were able to join me here on this episode. And please don't forget to subscribe wherever you hear this podcast. And not not to mention, check me out on Twitter, which is my Twitter handle is HistoricallySP2. And for daily drops of sports knowledge that I that I may bring to you from time to time so I'm glad once again glad to have you around glad to have you on board for this episode of historically speaking sports and until next time see you around Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football 
through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians, you'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.